to make sure everybody else can love it too. Okay, that's the recording. All right, good. I'll put that down here. So, uh, so in the book of Numbers, then there was a second census 40 years later, hence the Greek title of the book, Arithmoi. Now, in this book, God gets really angry at Israel. We might say that God gets ticked, so this is the book of Arithmoitic. <laughs> That's actually on the slide, which you can't see. All right, so, all right, so, uh, so um, God gets ticked at Israel's unbelief, and uh, so arithmetic. Now, my first real number in the book, in the lecture, is the days of creation, because the fourth, no, the fifth sentence of the Bible, the fifth verse of the Bible, I should say, uh, has. Uh, oh, we're good. Let's go back. A little bit. All right. Uh, so uh, strange numbers in the Bible, and that Hebrew line up there says "misparim uh, mazarim bamikra," which is, of course, strange numbers in the Bible. Okay. And uh, okay, professor of punditry, banditry, and Bible. All right, there I am. So um, strange numbers. How do how do I fix that spread in this thing? How do I fix that? Is there a way the projector can do that? Oh, bless you. Okay, thank you, Katie. All right, so two censuses, 40 years apart, and uh, arithmoi for the numbers in the book of uh, numbers, the Greek title. So uh, the Septuagint is the roughly the, the translation name for that first and oldest of all Bible translations made first by Jews roughly 200 B.C. for the Pentateuch. Probably in Alexandria, Egypt, where there was a very large Jewish community. So, okay, arithmoi, and God gets ticked. All right, uh, next slide. So, um, the very first uh, paragraph of the Bible um, begins the story of this of the six days of God's creative work. So, turn to uh, Genesis, if you will, and uh, if you've got a Bible, Genesis chapter one. Oh, that reminds me, an advertisement. Uh, in this room on November 11th, a Monday night, how many weeks hence? Uh, what, two, three? Okay, three weeks hence, Dr. Gabriel Barkai, one of the great excavators, uh, archaeological excavators of the land of Israel, uh, he's on U.S. tour this semester, and we are very blessed to get him here uh, Monday, November 11th. It's the archaeology class evening, but it's here and a, and a public lecture. Everyone's invited. We're trying to bring in people from synagogues and churches and all sorts of things. He's an Israeli Jew, an Orthodox Jew, and one of the greatest excavators in all the archaeological world, and the discoverer of the oldest biblical text in the world, which is not Dead Sea Scrolls, but rather two silver amulets, silver bits of jewelry that are actually rolled silver scrolls from 600 BC, which he found in a tomb in Jerusalem right at the feet of the Scottish Presbyterian Church. Oh, not a bad place to build a church above the oldest biblical text. All right, so uh, Gabriel Barkai, uh, some of you might get a card like this in your mailbox or an email like this. The fellow's photo there is not Curtis, it's Barkai. Okay, so um, we look a bit like twins a little bit. Okay, end of ad. So now, um, Genesis 1, the days of creation. One of the features in our creation story that most translations don't quite do well is the question of definite articles and the word day. So for instance, uh, after uh, the initial line about uh, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, which, by the way, is probably the most important sentence ever penned by human hand. 
Then we see that the earth was formless and empty, darkness upon the face of the deep, the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters, and, uh, and God said, He or, let there be light. By He or, and there was light. And uh, God separated the light from the darkness, God called the light day, the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, and then the text says, Yom Echad. Yom, everyone say Yom. You know this word already from Yom Kippur, which is the day of uh, pickled fish. No, no, no. Okay, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Kippur is atonement, Yom is day. So Yom Echad. How do we translate Yom Echad? Well, in Greek Septuagint, 200 BC, the Jewish scholars in Alexandria translated it as one day. And the Hebrew can easily be construed that way. Sometimes Echad means first, Sometimes it means one, O-N-E, one. Uh, Greek, uh, sorry, the, the Jewish scholars in Alexandria construed it as one day. All the other numbers are uh, ordinal numbers in this story, but the first number is taken as a cardinal number. And I think the cardinals are playing tonight, aren't they? So uh, are they playing tonight? Is this, are the cardinals playing? Okay, so they have cardinal numbers on their uniforms. Okay, so what's the difference between cardinal numbers and, and, and ordinal numbers? What's the diff? A cardinal number is, give me an example, math club members, a cardinal number. How many cardinals are there with the Pope in Rome? That's a cardinal number. How many cardinals on the team in St. Louis? That's a cardinal. No, no. What's a cardinal number? It's one, two, three, four, five. Okay, those are cardinal numbers. That is absolute numbers. Numbers that are not necessarily related to anything else. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. What are the ordinal numbers then? First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, etc. So the Greek translators took Yom Echad not as ordinal, first day, but as cardinal, one day. Now it so happens that ancient Greek Christian theologians noticed this when Basil the Great in the 360s is preaching a series of sermons on Easter week to workmen around sunrise every morning. The series of sermons is called the Hexameron, and Hex, as you know, is um, six, right? Hemeron is day, so the six days, the Hexameron, is the name of the sermons. And when he gets to the first day, day one, he says it is not the first day, it is one day. And then he quotes Zechariah 14, which speaks about the eschatological day, that is the day of Yahweh's victory over evil, which in Zechariah 14 is called in Hebrew, Yom Echad, one day. And Basil says that this is the same day. That is, the day of the founding of the universe is also identical to the day of the redemption of the universe, Zechariah 14. And that day is an ineffable day. It cannot be determined. It cannot be defined. It cannot be measured. It's something like the boundary line between heaven and earth, between eternity and time. Interesting interpretation of Yom Echad. Now, Basil may or may not be right. I kind of like Basil here. Uh, by the way, he was one of the founders of the doctrine of the Trinity. So if you confess the doctrine of the Trinity, thank Basil, a rather spicy fellow, uh, in his time. And he was sage. All right, now what else happens uh, within our story? We then have a puzzle with definite articles. 
translations typically say there was evening and there was morning the first day. They put a definite article there. There was evening and morning the second day, evening and morning the third day, evening and morning the fourth day, etc. All through the list, definite articles in English translations. Virtually every major English version presents definite articles in that whole set of sentences. However, in Hebrew, they're not there until day six. Okay, so evening and morning, one day, Yom Achad, then evening and morning, a second day, evening and morning, a third day, evening and morning, a fourth day, a fifth day, etc. By the way, why is it evening and morning? Wouldn't you be more comfortable with morning and evening? It's often quoted that way, morning and evening, that's not the text. Evening and morning. Because what happens in verse 2? Darkness upon the face of the deep. And then God says, let there be light. Okay, so darkness followed by light, hence evening followed by morning, and hence the Jewish day begins when? Sundown. As a result of that dynamic from darkness to light. So evening and morning, a second day, etc., a third day, a fourth day, a fifth day, no definite articles. Okay, now here's the weird thing. You would think that the series would continue unabated in that exact way. It doesn't. You then get evening and morning, the sixth day. Yom HaShishi. Now when you say Shishi, that is the ordinal number. Shesh is cardinal, Shishi is ordinal, and Shishi is actually cognate to six. Shishi has two sibilants, and six has two sibilants. And our numbers come from what numerical system? What do we call our number system? The Arabic number system. And Arabic is the kissing cousin language to Hebrew, right? So Arabic and Hebrew, both um, Semitic languages. So, uh, so uh, I think it's uh, perhaps uh, CC in Arabic, uh, Shishi in Hebrew, and six, okay, the sixth in, uh, in English. So evening and morning, the sixth day. We also have, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 2, the seventh day, Yom HaShavii, the day the seventh one. Yom is day, uh, HaShavii is the seventh one. And so we have definite articles only twice in the list of seven. Now translations usually um, eliminate this difference. What might the Hebrew writer mean? Let's take it as Moses. What might Moses mean? when he is uh, making this variation in the way days are stated. Well, let me just remind you, perhaps you know this from Bible 112, that in Genesis 1, lots of things are counted. How many recall how many times the text says, and God said? The word verb is vayomer. In Bible 112, I lecture on that question and uh, give you an answer. How many times does God speak in the text? 10, that's right. There are ten commands of creation, which are then matched by the ten commandments of ethics uh, on Mount Sinai to Moses uh, after the Exodus. So God speaks ten times, denoting the fullness of the created order. Nothing is missing. Um, seven times, the text says God saw that it was good. One of the days doesn't have the good. Day two. Day six has the good twice so that we're not missing something. And um, 
No, two days have the good twice. Day three has it twice. Day six has it twice. And the last time, which is the seventh time, it is how good? Very good. Okay, what is very good? What's said to be very good? God saw all that he had made. And indeed it was tov me'od. Tov is good, me'od is very. So six times tov, 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 tov. Day two is skipped. Now day two is the day of water and sky. Does this mean that something is bad on, on water and sky? Well, no, no, no. God saw all that he was made, that he had made, and it was very good, says day six. So why is good skipped on day two? So that on day seven, I'm sorry, day six, the creation of the human race, so that the whole could be summed up in very good, the seventh tov. Okay, are you impressed by, by Moses' numerics in the creation story? Uh, five times we have the verb divide. God divided between this and that. God divided between this and that. Seven times we have the verb create. Verse one. And then, uh, let's see, uh, five times regarding the creation of man. And then once more, I think, uh, in the uh, first, chapter, first lines of chapter 2, where the story is concluded with the seventh day. So the focus here is God's creative work of the human race, which then is said to be very, very good. The text is very thoroughly numbered by its author. Immensely conscious literary structure, word by word, sentence by sentence. So this is not a mistake. It's not a casual slip of pen or a casual bit of writing. It must be deliberate. So what does it mean? Well, here's what I think it means. That when you get to day six, there's a thoroughness and definiteness to what God has done. Now, a definite article in English usually denotes something quite clear. So if I say a... I can't step away, I've got a microphone and the recorder. If I say a chair, it could be any chair within this room or within the whole universe. If I point to that chair, okay, the chair, a particular chair. So indefiniteness, a chair, definiteness, the chair. Now day is typically a measure of solar time, isn't it? Evening and morning, okay, suggest solar time. It is of course true that solar time cannot literally begin until what day in our story's development? The day of the solar creation, what day is this? Day four. Ancient Christian theologians noticed this. Origen, the great uh, scholar of uh, first Alexandria and then later of Caesarea, says, okay, day four is the creation of sun, so evening and morning must be something metaphorical, the days must be metaphorical, the actions are real, but the time element is elusive. That's Origen writing in 220 AD in a great book called First Principles, which is the very first Christian theological text ever written. In First Principles, the days are metaphorical because solar time cannot begin until day four, and Origen decides that all the days have a metaphorical element. By the way, how long before Darwin is that? A long time. Okay, 1600 years before Darwin. Okay, so this has nothing to do with Darwinism. It's a, an, an assessment out of text. Now, um, ancient Christian theologians also noticed this about the definite articles. And here is uh, my suggestion regarding the definite articles, uh, the lack of definite articles, that we have indefinite time. 
in days one through five. And now with day six, with the creation of a human being, actually two human beings, we have a historian in the world. Well, let's say two historians. And now definite time begins. Definite article seems to suggest at least the prospect of definite time. Indefinite, indefiniteness for days one through five seems to suggest indefinite time. So there's, uh, there's a puzzle regarding uh, the first creation account. Now that account ends with um, the seventh day, which um, the chapter division is in the wrong spot. Um, and um, I'm skipping a slide somehow. All right, I've missed the slide. I must have deleted it. Okay, so uh, let me just cite then the opening lines of chapter 2, which says that, uh, okay, on the seventh day God rested from all his work of creating, so God blessed the seventh day. Now here it is, Yom HaShavii. And you hear the Ha, the Ha is the The. Shavii is seven, and you can hear Sheva, seven, as cognate words. Sava, Arabic, Sheva, Sheva, Hebrew, Shavii, seventh. It's all cognate, that means it's all kissing cousin words. Our numbers mainly come from Arabic. So, um, so the seventh day, notice it's the definite article, the seventh day. But notice what Hebrews in the New Testament says about this day. God's works were finished since the creation of the world, for somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. What book and chapter being quoted there in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews? Genesis 2 verse, what, 2 or 3. Okay, God rested from all his works on the seventh day. And then he says, regarding the Israelites in the book of Arithmoi, they shall never enter my rest because of their rebellion against God. And so he says that Joshua could not bring them into God's rest. There therefore remains for some to enter that rest. And in verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And then he says, um, um, For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Therefore let us make every every effort to enter that rest. Now what's our Hebrews writer doing here? He's saying that heaven, and in a certain way Christian life now, is the seventh day of divine rest. So when did the seventh day end? According to Hebrews 4, it hasn't, and it never will. Alright, so interesting numbers in the Bible. Enter this day then how? By faith in Jesus. And so, come all ye who labor and are heavy laden, Come to me, says Jesus, and I will give you rest. That is a Sabbath day idea, according to Hebrews chapter 4. Okay, another strange number. 480 years in 1 Kings 6.1. This is the uh, story of the founding of Solomon's temple. And uh, if you turn to 1 Kings 6, you'll read that the opening line says that in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the months of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. Now it so happens that Solomon uh, comes to the throne in the year, um, let's see, about the year 970 B.C., so here we are roughly uh, 966 BC for the founding of temple. Now, if you want to date the, the Exodus by this text, 
The math is simple. What date do you get? Add to 966, what? 480. Somebody do the math. All right, math club, be quick. 1446 BC. Okay. This is the traditional date or so for the date of the Exodus. 1446 BC. Some say 1444. It depends upon quite how you assess exactly the accession year of King Solomon, which varies a little bit by a couple of years in different Old Testament histories. Okay, so but we're in the we're in the 1440s. Alright, now here's one of the puzzles. In Exodus 1, the Israelites are building two treasure cities, Ramses and Pithom. Now, Ramses seems like his name for a pharaoh. And the greatest of the architectural pharaohs is indeed named Ramses. It's Ramses II, Ramses the Great. In the film The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston and Yul Brynner, Yul is Ramses the Great, Ramses II, who reigned from roughly uh, the 1280s BC down to the 1220s BC, a fine uh, 60 year reign. I've seen his mummy, but I've never met his daddy. <laughs> he couldn't talk, he was too pressed for time. Anyway, alright, so, so Ramses the Great is likely the pharaoh who wants to build a treasure city called Ramses. And we have Ramses buildings all over Egypt, north and south, or as they would have said, um, uh, upper, that is southern Egypt, and lower Egypt, the northern Egypt, because it's the elevations of the land. Um, and so um, if we've got a 1200-something date for a Ramses who's building lots of stuff, then there is at least a plausibility that the number in 1 Kings 6.1 is a constructed number, a kind of charismatic number, that is a proclamation number. That is not a literal number, a schematic number. Now the Bible loves schematic numbers. And uh, interpreters are sometimes um, well uh, flexed in their muscles, their, the muscles of their minds, to figure out which numbers are meant literally in historical detail and which numbers are meant schematically. Such as the 77s of Daniel 9, which speak of the numbers of years from the time that Daniel receives that prophecy in the 530s until the coming of Messiah, who's talked of in the 70th seven of that 77s of years, 490 years. But Daniel receives the vision in 530-something B.C. And so with 490 literally taken, we end up in like 40 B.C. for the Messiah, and we're off by a generation. It's a schematic number. And the numbers persistently in Daniel 9 are schematic numbers. There are many schematic numbers in the Bible. The most famous of these is 40. How is 40 used in the Bible? How many generations of time? One generation. But wait a minute, how old were your parents when they gave birth to you? 20-something for most of you. So an actual generation is 20-something. And when we count the ages of the Israelite and Judean kings and divide the numbers of their years and when their firstborns were born, we get the number roughly 22 for an exact generation on average for Israelite kings. So 40 is a schematic number and 22 something is the actual number and it's not a contradiction, it's not an error, it's a schematic number. Alright, now where in the Bible do we have lots of schematic numbers that are 40 or 20 or 80? 
And the land had peace for 40 years. And the land had peace for 80 years. The land had peace for 20 years. What book am I quoting persistently in that line? Judges. How many judges are there? 12. 12 times 40 is, do the math, 480. Is that a schematic number? As an estimate, a kind of holy, sacred estimate of the time of the judges, rather than a literal historical number. If that's so, then we can perhaps make more sense of the fact that the city the Israelites are building in their slavery is called Ramses. And the Ramses kings only reigned in the 19th dynasty, which is not the 1400s. Okay, this is a possible solution to a Bible puzzle. Do I know that this is the right solution? No, I don't. But it's a possible solution to a strange number in the Bible. How are we doing in this? Is it making sense? Okay, so strange numbers. Another interesting number. Okay, NIV from, the 19, from 1984, which is the, the uh, second edition of the NIV. Uh, New International Version first came out in 1978. I, I rejoiced to buy a copy of Isaiah alone in 1975. Uh, it, the whole Old Testament didn't exist yet in that version, but Isaiah and Psalms did in booklet form. I got a hold of Isaiah and led a Bible study group for a whole year in the NIV of Isaiah while I was beginning to learn Hebrew. I loved it. It was amazing. So uh, NIV 1984, second edition. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Okay, 90 by 9. Sounds like a bunch of sheep, doesn't it? The 90 and 9. Now, NIV 2011. Well, you know, NIV is usually known as a kind of, um, well, it's accused of being very loose. And the recent revisions in 2011 were by the thousands. Often they're accused of being very loose. But notice what happens in 2011. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dior in the province of Babylon. What's different about the text in 2011's NIV? Cubit, cubit. What's a cubit? I used to know what a cubit was. No, no. How big is a cubit? From your elbow bent to the bend of your fingers like this, roughly 18 inches, it was a rough measure for builders to measure the distance of, say, lumber or stonework or a fence or part of a building, a cubit. And um, 60 cubits then, well, if a cubit is 18 inches, how long is 60 cubits in feet? Do the math. 90. Okay, so a functional equivalence translation that is a translation that speaks more in our own native phrases and forms says 90 feet by 9. But the translators decided to change it to what's called a formal equivalence translation that is reflecting the forms and functions of the Hebrew original. And they changed it to 60 cubits by 6, which in fact is the King James Version here. Why are they going backwards on this text? Here's why. 60 by 6 is actually a rather beastly number. A nearly beastly number. And what is happening with this gold statue that's so immense? Nebuchadnezzar, of course, has commanded all of his court officials and everyone in the whole uh, province of Babylon to bow down before the gold idol when the music of the, of the, you know, the harps and the timbrels and, and, and you know, the flutes, and, and etc., etc., starts to play, and three Jewish young men refuse to do it. Who remembers their names? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or that's Babylonian, or um, um, uh, Azariah and um, uh, um, 
uh, help me here, Hananiah, Hananiah uh, Azariah, and um, help me, uh, Mishael. Yeah, Mishael. There you go. So Mishael becomes Meshach, etc. So uh, these Hebrew uh, young men are court officials, but they refuse, and so Nebuchadnezzar threatens them with what doom? The fiery furnace. Okay, and uh, they uh, they are spared by miraculous power. So this is a deified state persecuting believers to the death. Seven times in the text it says, quote, the statue of gold that you, O king, have set up. Seven times this phrase exists in Daniel 3. Why seven? Because that's the number of completeness. And what is being complete here? The paganism of the state. The statue is actually the deified state of Babylon that requires worship. And Daniel's friends refused to do so. And so, um, a nearly beastly number. Can you see another number that is based upon this very exactly? Intensified by one more place value. What's the number? What's the number? 666. Okay, that's why the NIV translators changed it back to the King James equivalent. Because otherwise it masked the link between this chapter and Revelation 13. And the inner biblical link was viewed by the revised, the revision translators as essential to understanding the text as state idolatry persecuting to the death. What is the beast of Revelation 13? State idolatry persecuting to the death. Another weird number. Matthew 1, 17, uh, 1 to 17. Now I've got three examples from the old, I've got three from the new, and how much time do I have left, Bonnie? Okay, so um, Matthew says that there are 42 generations um, from Abraham to Jesus. The first sentence of Matthew says the book of the genealogy, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. That sounds like a three-generation genealogy of son, father, and grandfather. But if you know your Bible, you know it's a thousand years between uh, those names. Uh, David is 1000 BC, Abraham roughly 2000 BC. What's going on here? Well, Matthew will fill out more detail. And he'll tell you that from Abraham to David is 14 generations, and from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the carrying of ba to Babylon to the coming of the Christ, 14 generations. Now, in Doug Adams, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, what is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? All right. So 42. What's the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything? 42. Well, we'll say, what's the answer to the, to the question of life, the universe, and everything? Jesus, born after 42 generations. Now, uh, what's going on here? This is a bit of um, mathematical play by math, I'm sorry, by Matthew, who could count. Okay, Matthew did math. And in Matthew's Gospel, we have the name David in this text in the very first sentence. David in Hebrew is Dalit Vav Dalit. Three letters in Hebrew. The vowels aren't there. Hebrew has, at least in its oldest form, no vowels, at least no written vowels. It's only consonants. So if you want to buy a vowel, you've got to go to Vanna White. So, um, so, so the consonants actually become numbers by 200 BC. It's like Roman numerals. What makes a Roman numeral? Well, let's see. Um, the the word for I'm sorry, the, the letter for fifty is what L. 
The letter for 100 is C. A centurion is a captain over 100. Oh, so C is from century, 100. Okay, the Roman numerals are from letters. The Hebrews do the same thing roughly 200 BC. And Dalit is the fourth letter of the alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit. So Dalit is four. And we have it twice. Four, four. Vav is the sixth letter. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit, He, Vav. Four plus six plus four, what do you get? Do the math, club. Four. Okay, so maths, Matthew's math is mathematical. Okay, 14. The number for David then in what the rabbis called gematria is 14. So why 14 times 3? 14 times 3 is 22. And 14 times 3 is triple David. And so Jesus is super David. And that's what Matthew's math means. Jesus is super David. Or as one 19th century hymn uh, says it, as Charles Spurgeon liked to say, Great David's greater son. Now greater is a, a comparative degree. I'll say Great David's greatest son, because the superlative is the third degree, isn't it? Good, better, best? Okay, great, greater, greatest? Okay, Dave, David's greatest son, the third degree, 14 times 3. Now how does Matthew get there? Now here the print is small, because I've got to have king lists, and the longest king list is 20. Matthew's king list after David gives us 14 generations, 14 kings after David. Why do we start after David? Because from Abraham to David is 14. So we don't count David twice. So then from Solomon down to the end of the list, 14 kings. Now what about the actual list of kings in the Old Testament? It's 20 kings, but wait a minute. Uh, Zedekiah is not counted because he had no surviving descendants. It is Jehoiakim, I'm sorry, Jehoiachin, otherwise known as Jeconiah, who is the actual ancestor of Jesus. But notice the gaps in the other column. After Uzziah, a gap of three. After Josiah, a gap of two. What's going on here? Matthew has intentionally cut some kings out. Is it because he didn't know? He knew. The lists were easy. Read 1 Kings, read 2 Kings. The lists are easy. A well-informed Israelite knows the list is easy. What is Matthew doing? He wants to do what's called gematria. Now that's a later term. It is a rabbinic uh, Hebrew name for geometry. Gematria. It is a frequent rabbinic method of exegesis, of interpretation, uh, especially popular among Hasids today. But in gematria we use numbers to interpret text. And what number is being chosen here? Well, 14 is the magic David number. And so he's got to construct the genealogy to make it be 14 plus 14 plus 14. It is a selective genealogy, not an error. It is an intentional selection, and the astute reader knows and is not troubled by it. And so who is Jesus? He is super David. Great David's greatest son. All right, now the beastly number, 666. No one can buy or sell unless he has this mark. The name of the beast is the, or, uh, or the number of its name. So notice the name and the number are brought together in verse 17. This calls for wisdom. Oh, you've got to figure it out, he says. Be wise and figure it out. It is a numerology to be figured out. Calculate the number of the beast. It's the number of a man. And some versions say here rightly the number of a man's name, his number is 666. Okay, now one possible solution, day six in creation story, the day of man's creation. 
Three, the Trinitarian number. So what is 666? Man falsely deifying himself. Triple six. That's a very attractive solution. Now the full doctrine of the Trinity is not expressly said in the New Testament, but there's plenty about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to give us a, uh, an implied and powerful, powerfully implied Trinitarianism. So I'm not troubled by the three being the Trinitarian number. Okay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word Trinity is not invented until the early 3rd century. Alright, I'm not troubled by that. But here is something that might agree and be more detailed. Man falsely divinized. What about Nero? Did he claim to be a god? He did. Did he claim divine honors? He did. And if we write his name in Latin, Nero Caesar, the C in Latin is a K, the A is an I sound, Caesar, and if you remember Kaiser Wilhelm II, okay, Kaiser is the German of Kaisar, and Tsar in Russia is the Russian equivalent of Kaisar, and we put it in Hebrew, Neron Kasar. And they're the Hebrew letters, Nun, Resh, Nun, Kof, Samek, Resh. Each has a numerical value. What's the numbers add up to? Somebody in the math club tell me how the math is. 666. Alright, so uh, what might we conclude then that the 666 names Nero? Now Nero hanged himself after being declared public enemy number one by the Roman Senate. He'd killed too many of their number. So there's a strange number. But there was a fear that Nero would return to tyrannize the empire. It was a pagan legend in the 70s, 80s, and 90s AD. Revelation is written in the middle 90s AD according to ancient sources. And the fear of Nero redivivus, as the Romans said, Nero back from the dead, pervaded the empire with its superstition. Notice in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist is described as the one who was and is not and is going into the abyss. And that's the alternative to the one, the, the one God who was and is and is to come. The alternative to Trinitarian. Nero, the first Roman emperor to persecute Christians to death, does anyone know what two apostles he had killed? Peter and Paul. Okay, the first Roman emperor to do such things. So Nero then is a model for Antichrist. And 666 is the code. And if you've got wisdom, you can discern it. Now, when I was studying in seminary, my professor was Dr. Wayne Spear, and one of my classmates was a math major, a graduate of Geneva, Dan Keppel. And Dan figured out if they put Wayne Spear's name in Hebrew letters, it added up to 666. Okay. So Wayne laughed a lot at that. Uh, uh, so you can tell his granddaughters who are here uh, about that story. So, um, so, so Nero as model for final antichrist and 666 a man who claims to be God and persecutes to death those who refuse to say Caesar is Lord you see how numbers preach gospel okay so should he be afraid of this number okay you're, you're in the store and your cash register rings up to $66.06 should he be afraid no okay don't, don't worry not to worry you're reading book page 666 in your textbook not to worry the Russian Orthodox Church, by the way, investigated that question in 2001, and they said, not to worry. Okay, if the Russians say, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> My social security number has a 666. Well, bless you, bless you. Okay. So the number is a symbol for, for a spiritual principle. 
Worry about the spiritual principle. Worry about that. Okay. One more number and I'm done, Bonnie. Okay? Are you anxious? Oh, no. You can, you can go as long as you want. No, I won't. Okay. <laughs> so Revelation 21.16. Here we are almost on the last page of the Bible and pretty much the last number of the Bible. So we started with, with Genesis 1. We're now in Revelation. We've done the whole Bible in 50 minutes. The city. What city? The New Jerusalem. Four square. Its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Now what in the world is a stadia? A stadium is singular in Latin, stadia plural in Latin, and it comes into Greek directly that way. Stadia is the Greek plural. A stadium is the length of a, can you guess? A stadium. <laughs> okay, so consider a Roman athletic arena like the Colosseum or something. The length of that is a stadium, but the Romans standardized it. So we know the length of a stadium, and in fact a stadium is, uh, well let's see, 12,000 of them are 1,221 miles. Did I quote that exactly from my notes? Now if you go from Jerusalem and measure 1,221 miles, whatever it is, you end up in Rome. This is a pretty big city, isn't it? Okay, so what's going on with the weird number? Also notice the walls, 144 cubits. Notice any numerical patterns? Twelves are all over this place. Okay, so let's go there. 12,000 stadia. I'm sorry, I got the number wrong. 1,380 miles. I was thinking of the kilometers. 2,221 kilometers. The distance from Jerusalem to Rome. The walls are 144 cubits thick. 12 times 12. Number of the tribes of Israel is 12. 12 times 12, okay, 144. The city is 12,000 stadia cubed. 12 times 10 cubed. And remember from Revelation 7, 12,000 elect from each tribe. Why is 12,000 cubed? Because you've got to have room for all these elect. Is the number a literal number? Well, later on in chapter 7 of Revelation, it says the number of the elect, the number of the saved is from every tribe and tongue and language and people whom no one can count. So this is a schematic number, a symbolic number. What does it mean? Well, in the Bible there are only two perfect cubes. And it's not the dice the Roman soldiers are using at the foot of the cross. Those were loaded dice. The Holy of Holies is the first and only perfect cube in the Old Testament. Ten cubits cubed. So fifteen feet 1515. The Holy of Holies is Yahweh's throne room, a visible depiction of highest heaven upon the earth. And the Ark of the Covenant has a lid called the Mercy Seat in King James Version. I'd much rather call it the throne of grace. The New Jerusalem is the only other cube. And we're not talking about the Borg Collective in Star Trek Next Generation. They fly around in cubes. Oh well. So uh, New Jerusalem, 12,000 stadia cubed. 12 times, 12 tries by 10 cubed is 12,000. What's going on in the number? We are making vast room for the whole number of the elect when they are symbolized under the number 12,000 times 12. So the Holy of Holies, God's Old Testament throne room, the highest heaven, and the New Jerusalem, God's final home, and ours, not a literal number, but symbolic of what? The immensity of redemption. What happens? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It is the renewal of all of creation, the renewal of heaven and earth. 
And now the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven back down to earth. And the text says, And now the dwelling of God is with men, with people, and He will dwell with them. Where is God then said to be? Upon the earth, in His now immense Holy of Holies. What is the new Jerusalem? It is the immense Holy of Holies, said to be so immense, that all of God's people and God Himself and the Christ, etc., all can be there within that metaphorical space. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them. What's the point? Not that the true Jerusalem stretches from Jerusalem to Rome. What's the point? The utter immensity of the final blessedness of redemption. Numbers in the Bible are strange often, but they preach gospel. I'm done. Are there um, questions? How much time do we have, Bonnie, for questions? I don't think anything else is scheduled, so you just have fun. <laughs> well, let's go for about 10 minutes and see what happens. Okay. okay. And uh, If you need to be dismissed now and I've got to sign a paper for some class you're getting points for, how mercenary. Uh, stack. Um, uh, can someone sign for me? Okay. Uh, okay, Bonnie will sign for me. Okay. So, uh, so questions. Okay, I've got Phil. Who else do I have? Let's get about three or four, and I'll try to take them in a row. Uh, okay, uh, Debbie, I've got Phil, I've got Debbie. Who else do I have? Okay, so two mathematicians. Okay, I'll, I'm, I'm scared. Okay, I'm, I've got two mathematicians. Uh, Phil. Can Jesus' number have any significance? Does, say again? Does Jesus or Yeshua, the numbers, do anything interesting with that name? Well, uh, Yochin Vav Ayin. I don't know. Like a thing to ask. Uh, I've never um, investigated that question. So uh, Yoda's ten. Um, Shin is uh, let's see. Kuf is a hundred. Uh, Rish. Uh, okay, so it's three hundred. Um, Ayin. Um, Ayin is uh, what? Um, Well, I, 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 my, I'm, my mind's a little too befuddled to do the math right now to figure out which Hebrew letters. I rarely use those Hebrew numbers so advanced in the alphabet. But after Koph, they they increase by a hundred each time, and there are twenty-two such letters. So uh, Shin Tov. So uh, all right, so there you go. But uh, I'll figure it out later. Okay, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. Okay, uh, Debbie Schaefer. So when you were talking about Miro and you had those numbers. <coughs> Uh, maybe there was a, uh, a bottom line on the screen that didn't get projected, but the numbers do add to 666. Go, go back a couple slides. Um, did I do it? Okay, I did this in a very great hurry. Um, there you go. Oh, uh, there's no final six. What did I do here? Oh, I know what I did. Uh, there was supposed to be a VOV right up. Oh, I can't do it on, this is a PDF. There's supposed to be a Vav. I left the Vav out. Okay. Um, okay, there is a... Right here, there is an O, which is Vav. I left it out by mistake. Okay. The Vav is how much? Six. Six, okay. So I did this at about ten after six, this particular page. <laughs> 
So that's how my life's been lately. All right. So uh, yeah, and I, I, you did catch a mistake, and, and the vav is meant to be there, and the vav indeed uh, means six. So uh, near o, the o of, of Latin becomes the vav in Hebrew, and it typically bears the o sound in Hebrew uh, spellings. All right. Thank you for noticing that. I've got to fix that. So the screen is wrong, but the idea is not. Okay. Is there another question? Uh, uh, Ken and John. I'll start with Ken. So one explanation I've heard for 666 different than yours is that it's one short of the perfect number 777. Um, so not trying to tie it to a zero or a particular thing. What would your well, that's part of that first interpretation, which I gave in only brief form. Six, the day of man, seven, the day of God. So 666 is man falling short of divine perfection, but man striving for divine perfection falsely, idolatrously. Yeah, so so those those two ideas are one interpretive set. Yeah. And and I, I think that the two interpretations, that is six 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 seven six seven plus Nero Caesar actually correspond and could be a double entendre, a double meaning by our by John our revelator here in that text in Revelation thirteen. So I don't think the one excludes the other. Uh, because actually Nero does claim divine status. The first emperor to do so I think is um, Caligula in the around forty AD. Uh, he even claimed Senate membership for his horse. Sometimes I wish senators were horse. Uh, uh, but uh, okay, so so Caligula claims divine honors. Previously, divine honors were only claimed by successors for their dead predecessors. So Augustus, the first emperor, proclaims Julius, his adoptive father, divine, but Julius is dead. So with Caligula, roughly 40 AD, the Roman emperor claimed it for themselves in their own lifetimes. And Nero will do that in the 60s. Uh, John, and this is my final question, I think, unless you want to converse more informally thereafter. This is absolutely fascinating, and particularly just unpacking some of the schematic numbers and the, and the things that they help us understand. Well, how would you summarize though, the guidelines to help us textually distinguish between a, a, what the writer intended, a schematic number versus a literal number? Well, round numbers are often schematic. Um, okay, so 24,000 people die by snake bite, you know, uh, in, in the time of Moses in the wilderness. Uh, and St. Paul will say 23,000. Uh, well, it's, it's not an error. It's, it's a, it, I mean, these are, these are rough approximations. And who says that the rule for rounding is always to go up in ancient Greek or Hellenistic or Jewish culture? So our standards of rounding numbers are our own recent convention, and maybe our degrees of precision will be rejected by those who come 100 years after us, and they'll call our numbers all wrong. So, so a degree of precision might be demanded by recent readers that is utterly far into the writers and their original audiences. So, so round numbers are um, not necessarily conforming to our rules. Okay, there's a kind of schematic stuff there. But a schematic number more completely is a number like the 77s of Daniel 9. And uh, so that number is divided into three groups. There are seven sevens, and then 62 sevens, and one seven. Well, the seven sevens are said to be from the time that Jerusalem is be beginning to be restored in time, until the time it's fortified with a moat and a trench. 
Now, who actually fortifies Jerusalem? It's Nehemiah in the 440s BC. And Daniel receives this message in 530s BC. That's 90 years apart, nearly. But the schematic number is 70 times, I'm sorry, 7 times 7, 49 years. And then from the fortification of Jerusalem to the week of years in which the Christ comes, it's 62 sevens. But that only brings us down into the middle of the first century BC. And then in the middle of the 70th week, the Messiah is cut off, executed. Okay, so there very clearly, there's a schematic stuff going on, and the first set tells you that, because Nehemiah is in the 440s, and Daniel receives this in 539 or so for that event. So um, um, some interpreters try to start the clock at Nehemiah, but there's no good textual reason to do that within Daniel chapter 9 itself. So, um, so I'll say, if a number does not work in literal mode, then that might be, okay, the clue is try a schematic interpretation. As I suggested for 480 in 1 Kings 6.1, it brings you into the 1440s for the Exodus. That might be true. And there are many people who hold that the Exodus is indeed in the 1440s, and 1 Kings 6 is their, their uh, principal case. And then they'll talk about um, destruction of Bronze Age cities in the 1300s and, 14, uh, and, and around 1300 something BC. And they'll try to weave archaeology with that. And there's a good argument that can be done that way. But it's still perplexing why there's a Ramses treasure city being, city being built by Hebrew slaves when the Ramses kings are all the 19th dynasty. And in the 1400s, it's uh, like um, it's uh, Amenhotep and um, uh, a different dynasty. It's the uh, 17th or 18th dynasty there. So, uh, so the matching of, dynast of dynastic name is still a puzzle for those who take the number literally. And that's why William F. Walbright about 60 years ago suggested a schematic number and that it was based upon the 12 judges in their 40 years schematic summaries. Uh, I'll, I'll do one more question, is that right? Uh, okay, uh, David. So are you, are you arguing then that back then precision in numbering wasn't as big a deal culturally? Well, that's certainly true. Today? Well, in some texts, there's an immense desire for precision. When you read Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7, there's a counting of the numbers of people who came back from exile, and they're meant to be very, very precise because there are no round figures in that list, and the, the numbers are real, like 739 people from this clan and, and 642 from this village and, and so on until you get 50,000 and something as the total number at the bottom line of Ezra chapter 2. That text is very well meant to be a precise record, maybe over a couple of generations of time, but it's meant to be a precise census of who's come back from Babylonia. All right. So, um, so when you see that pattern of precision down to single digits, okay, we've got it. But 77s of years, well, that's the sabbatical year, isn't it? And seven sevens is the jubilee year, right? Uh, okay, so that, that's a number that just preaches a schematic theological issue rather than an exactitude. At Dallas Seminary, it's taken with exactitude, but you've got to start with Nehemiah, and that's cheating. You've got to start with King Cyrus, who sends the Jews home, and who is Daniel's contemporary. That runs so against so much of our interpretation of the Bible where we expect precision and exactitude and 
absolute reliability. It is reliable. These two cultures that are clashing. It's not a question of reliability. The numbers are reliable in what they preach. And the message is firm. So if you take them as precise, you misconstrue their meaning when the numbers are meant schematically. Okay? So the numbers mean something, but they don't always mean what we think they mean as naive readers of the Bible in the 21st century in North America in English translation. So we have to enter that that Hebrew Old Testament culture or the Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture of St. Paul and rethink how numbers work in ancient modes of discourse. So we judge the validity of a number by the ancient modes, not by our own. If we judge them by our own, what if our modes of discourse then change by 2,113? Then the numbers are wrong for later interpreters. You see, we, we've imposed a false set of rules. Let's get the right set of rules. And then the numbers preach gospel. Are we done for the evening? We've ended with preaching gospel. That's good. So blessings upon all. The Lord be with you. If anybody else would like refreshments, there are cookies over there. So enjoy. Let's thank them one more time. Thank you all. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Oh, you